0: Ken, I know you've been watching some documentaries recently on Netflix. What's caught your attention? So there's one called Civil, directed by Nadia Hallgren, that follows the civil rights attorney, Ben Crump, for a year of his law practice. And it's really fascinating to see what happens behind the scenes. There's obviously been a huge amount of attention placed on the criminal cases in the George Floyd murder and in other high-profile cases. But often, we don't really know what's happening with the civil litigation. And Ben Crump has been there not only for the George Floyd case, but he's represented the families of Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin and many other families. And it's just a fascinating look at the relationship between the legal team and the families and how they try to hold these municipalities accountable for these police killings. And you can find Civil now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Ferguson about her film, Nothing Compares. This is how she describes the film.
1: Nothing Compares is the story of Sinead O'Connor's phenomenal rise to worldwide fame and how her iconoclastic personality resulted in her exile from the pop mainstream. Focusing on her prophetic words and deeds from 1987 to 1993, the film reflects on the legacy of this fearless artist through a contemporary feminist lens.
0: Nothing Compares screened at Sundance and it starts on Showtime September 30th. Catherine Ferguson has directed such shorts as Taking the Waters, Space to Be, and The Greatest Luxury. It was really fascinating to be thrown back into this world Many of the events that take place here happened 30 years ago, and it's easy to misremember exactly the tale here. And to sort of not fully grasp what happened to Sinead O'Connor's career in the wake of her appearance on Saturday Night Live when she tore up a picture of the then-Pope John Paul II. But Catherine's film also really does a great job of contextualizing Sinead O'Connor, not just as a singer who ran into some trouble but truly is somebody who due to her background and due to her beliefs became sort of an accidental activist. Somebody who just followed her instincts and what was right and what was wrong and then subsequently created the kind of controversy that she did. Again, as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow the podcast and also you can follow us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. And now my conversation with Catherine Ferguson, director of the film, Nothing Compares. So we love to start with the beginnings of films because we know that a lot of thought goes into it. Typically, you start with a scene where Sinead is introduced onto the stage by an American voice, which may be vaguely familiar to some, which says her name has become synonymous with courage and integrity. And then the audience reacts in this very striking way, kind of a full-throated mix of cheers and jeers at the same time. We see her pause, she paces, doesn't look like she's really enjoying the experience. I found this very interesting for a number of reasons. You you don't provide much context yet for this moment. What is this? Where are we? When is this? You cut to some quick kind of establishing images. I spotted a head being shaved, maybe an anti-Sinead protester. But, you know, maybe that's a really good idea to set it in this world. Where are we? What's happening? Because probably some portion of the audience knows that at some point, Sinead O'Connor became quote unquote controversial.
1: It was a decision that we made early on. You know, we had seen this footage. It's of Bob Dylan's anniversary concert. He's invited all of these uh, protest artists to perform as uh, his birthday as well. Essentially, it's his birthday party, but a Madison Square Gardens audience of 20,000 people. And Sinead was invited to be one of the artists Um, come and perform a song. There, You know, Bob Dylan has been everything to her. It was the first person that she'd ever really identified with as as it all gets revealed later in the film. Uh, And as you mentioned, she walks out to this stage, delighted to be there. And there she is being asked to go and perform at his birthday party. And she is greeted, as you said, with this horrific mix of booing and cheering by this 20,000 strong crowd. You can just see so much in that footage on her face. You can read so much of what she's feeling and experiencing and the horror of walking out onto the stage to be treated the way she is. It's very poignant and potent. And I suppose for us trying to work out what our opening scene was, we kind of just wanted to give the audience a taster of of what was coming because it's it's a really unsettling confusing scene because you don't really understand what's going on it's not a happy scene and i think just even hearing the famous voice who we can name is chris christopherson i think he sets it up really powerfully because here he is saying she's amazing and then the reaction is so paradoxical to what he's just said And it just felt like a really powerful way to set up what's coming, you know, because so much of the film is about cause and effect. For us, that really epitomized everything that we then go on to discuss in the film. So it just felt like a good way to to whet the appetite of what's to come.
0: So besides Sinead herself, I think a really important character in your film, or maybe characters, depending on how you count, is Ireland and the Catholic Church. You mentioned early on that Sinead's mother was abusive to her as a child. And you suggest that the church was responsible for her mother's condition in some fashion. One of your speakers turns this around and says, in some ways, Ireland was an abused child and the church was its abuser. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack here. (laughs) So maybe we can start with the relationship between the church and Ireland. And can you explain, really until fairly recently, the very powerful role the church played, especially regulating women's lives, Irish women's lives in terms of contraception, abortion, and divorce?
1: Mm -hmm. Really, until very recently, and I'd say 10, 15 years ago, the church held Ireland in such a stronghold. The buddying up of church and state together made it a very, very powerful entity that was able to have such control over its people. Catholicism is often, unfortunately, quite fear-driven, and to be able to look at Sinead's story and again the cause and effect we had to go back to look at where she was spawned from and you know the societal restrictions And as you mentioned, uh, women particularly had been treated. But really, I think when you even see, you'll see later in the film, we have the famous Pope visit to Ireland. I think that was 1978. You know, the masses are out. It's like the biggest pop star of all time coming to see the Pope. I mean, their power infiltrated everything, every aspect of life. I think as a country today, we're only starting to unpack the transgenerational trauma That is so ingrained and has damaged so many lives in the country because of the church's influence.
0: My mother was a third-generation Irish immigrant in New England. She lived with her grandmother, who was from County Cork, who had divorced her English-born husband, so a bunch of uh, rebellions there. And I have to say that this legacy of shame around the body is incredibly intense. It carries on generation after generation. You mentioned that Sinead's grandparents were afraid of even giving each other a kiss for fear of their souls.
1: Yeah, Sinead says that beautifully in the film. It was a very fear driven society and people were made to feel very small. I think now, again, we're just looking at all of these like historic cases. Of course, we had the huge sexual abuse scandal at the church. But all of the horrendousness that's now coming out about the mother and baby homes, the Magdalene laundries, and the actual reality of how bad it was. You know, seemingly Ireland's known to be so friendly and fun and culturally interesting and all of this. But there was such a deep, sadistic horror that was happening within the country for so long. It's it's such a paradox to how it's, you know, known around the world.
0: We can see the impact of this in Sinead's relationship with her mother, which is very difficult.
1: I I don't particularly want to say too much about their relationship because it's not my place. But I think Sinead talks about it very poignantly in both our film and in her book. It sounds like there was a lot of trauma. I, I don't know what her mother's story was. And again, I can't comment on it. But what we wanted to look at was just how many generations have been affected, like how ingrained this deep trauma in Ireland has been, and then the results it's had on its women. And I think she talks about it beautifully at points in the film. Her mother, her mother's mother, her mother's mother. It's such entrenched transgenerational trauma that just has seeped out and has affected so many people. And it's something that the country really is grappling with. The aftermath of all that's gone on is horrifying.
0: Sinead ends up in a reformatory home. That's what I would call it this becomes a place in some ways of a little bit of further drama, trauma, I should say, but also she makes connections here that really opens up this world of music to her.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. She talks very interestingly about the head nun at the school being very kind, but very cruel. I think in many ways, the school she was sent to because she met Jeanette Byrne, the fantastic music teacher that features in the film, who really was able to see her and hear her amazing talent I think in many ways, and I think Sinead has said too, in a lot of ways, it really helped put her on the path that she then went on. It wasn't a happy time there by any means, but I think the nuns bought her her first guitar while she was there. And I think that's important to be nuanced about it because of course, you know, I've just said lots about the Catholic Church, but of course there are lots of good people working within it too. And I think that's evident in what she says and that she was actually supported and encouraged to follow music. The sad thing about it is that it was attached to a laundry, a Magdalen laundry. And she actually witnessed these 80-year-old women who'd been incarcerated since, you know, the 1920s. For 60 years, incarcerated because many of them had had a child out of wedlock or, I and mean, God knows what even had happened. So many women were just put away without having any choice in the matter. And I think the fact that she got to actually meet some of these much older Magdalen girls really had a huge profound effect on her.
0: And she, quite young, departs for London. This is the punk London of the 80s. Can you explain the draw for her of London?
1: I think it must have been like going to outer space after leaving Dublin in 1985. I think, as she talks about it beautifully, getting to meet this incredible queer scene in London She discovers Rasta, all the things that were just not available to her in Ireland. Suddenly the doors opened and she was able to see the world and how different it was from where she'd come from. I mean, I think it's incredible that she had actually got this deal that allowed her to spend a year developing her talent. I don't know how common that was, but what an amazing thing to have given to you. But then, of course... There's also an element of control there. You know, they brought her over and are encouraging her amazing talent. But they have comments about how she should look when she gets pregnant. They have comments about whether or not this baby should be kept if it's to affect her career. And I think immediately she starts to rub up against these figures who in some way triggers and, and reminds her then of the patriarchy that she's left behind in Ireland.
0: She says that she's encouraged by the record company to wear Long hair and short skirts, I think yeah. she says. And she pushes back and she does this really interesting thing, which she shaves her head yep. as well. She dons leather, jeans, chains, some of the elements of punk culture at the time. Um, it's really striking. And you spend some time on this. And I think it is really important. This image of her is super important about how we think about her and how she thought about herself.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, just about like a really key moment in the film where she's shaving the head. It's like it's almost like the birth of her. She really just finds this version of herself that she's very comfortable in and doesn't really see it as a big deal at all. She just wants to shave her head because she doesn't want to grow her hair long and wear makeup. That's a look that she wants to have but my goodness, the drama it causes. (laughs) It's talked about so often and by so many people for so many years. I think that's the thing is that people often, you know, put her down as being controversial for the sake of it, but actually I just think she just follows her instinct with things and her instinct often causes (laughs) a huge reaction because she's not a conformist and people seem to be uneasy with that. I think the fact she was so absurdly good looking, probably didn't help.
0: At 20 years old, she and her longtime boyfriend and later husband, John Reynolds, conceived a child. And again, the music company really takes an opinion on this. Like they want her to end that pregnancy. She really pushes back on this. And interestingly, I didn't notice this, but those videos for that first album, a lot of them are shot kind of high up. So you can't see she's pregnant.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was another example of her saying no. (laughs) And she wants to keep the baby and isn't going to be told what to do by anybody. That's very early on and works with the very incredible John Mabry, phenomenal filmmaker. He's able to probably sets the look for a lot of the videos. It's all around the head and the face. I feel like he would have shot her pregnant actually, but I feel he could see how iconic this head was. And you didn't need much else going on apart from her fantastic face.
0: It also leads her the pregnancy. Maybe there's generally a pushback. She re-records the entire first album, and the line in the cover that we know is this second version. And it's dramatically different from the sound I heard, both, I think, in terms of its progression of musical style, but also of the exploitation of her own voice.
1: I think there were many versions of it. Um, I think when they landed on a final version, she just wasn't happy with it at all. And she wanted to strip it right back. And really, I think John and Sinead produced the final version themselves, mostly. I think it maybe was slightly overproduced originally and... I think she just was really trying to find her voice and her style. So kind of went back to the drawing board and did it all again. And that's what we've now got as a line in the Cobra, which is so startling and fantastic. And so I'm very glad they did that.
0: Absolutely. And another kind of enterprise she took on at a very young age is she starred in a movie, which I did not know about, called Hushabye Baby, which traced the plight of a 15-year-old Irish girl who gets pregnant. I mean, you have this great interview, and the interviewer is trying to draw a very tight comparison between her and this young 15 year old girl. And she says, No, no, I was 20, not 15. I had a steady boyfriend. I had a bit of money. I was living in London, importantly, where pregnancy among young is not looked down upon in quite the same way. You know, still a story about a challenge of a young woman in Ireland. Can you talk a little bit about how the film reflects and doesn't reflect her experience?
1: I mean, I don't think in any way it reflects her own experience. And I think that's why she very strongly calls out the interviewer who suggests that it does. But I think what she wanted to do with that film was star in a film that is highlighting and putting a spotlight on these themes that were so pertinent during the 80s and 90s in Ireland you know the horror of a teenager getting pregnant and what that looked like and the shaming and the ostracization you know that women or girls go through if that ever happens it's such a trope in Ireland there was always so much fear about being pregnant out of wedlock and of course abortion was completely banned as was contraception. Margot Harkin is a director, fabulous Northern Irish director, one of my favourite directors. And she does amazing documentaries, actually, that are worth watching. Mother Ireland, one in particular. I think she has created this incredible drama, which puts the spotlight on this very serious situation at home. And Sinead just felt very aligned with that vision and wanted to be part of it which is amazing because I think initially Sinead was just going to do the soundtrack and then agreed to actually be in it and I'm sure that did the film lots of good because she was already rising up and becoming a star at that point so I think at Home Should My Baby it made a big dent. It was one of the first dramas that really honed in on this story of how young women are treated in a kind of dairy Girls way, actually. Now, Dairy Girls is such a phenomenon. It was the original Dairy Girls. It's set in dairy and it's teenage It's teenage girls dealing, you know, trying to negotiate how you cope with an out-of-wedlocked baby.
0: Before we go too much deeper into our recording history, another really interesting thing about London, I think, is as Americans, we don't think of London of having much of a Rasta culture but of course you know Jamaica was part of the empire and sure enough there is a lot of reggae and it really influenced a number of the artists of that period I think of the clash the police mm-hmm. even Evels Costello yeah but for Sinead it seems like the influence of Rasta culture goes deeper than kind of this disruptive beats of the island's music it has maybe something spiritual to it
1: oh yeah I mean once she found reggae and Rastafarianism, I think it just it hugely influenced her. She just loves it. And she talks very articulately about finally the, meeting these guys here, talking about the Pope being the devil and burn the Vatican. And, you know, how she felt like she was home finally hearing these uh, these amazing guys saying all of this. And I think she just really loves the music and her entire career has Been a huge fan of reggae and even released a reggae album. But yeah, I just think it's something that's been a lifelong interest and passion of hers.
0: Her second record, I think, is even more challenging in some ways. The record company rejects it, says it's too much like a diary. And she says these songs are very personal songs. She's really singing about herself for the first time. The song Troy, for instance, relates in great specificity a very particular form of abuse that she suffered. Her mother would banish her from the house into the garden, even in inclement weather. And she says, it, it's not a song, it's a testament. What does she mean by that, do you think?
1: It's actually, it was the Lion and the Cobra is Troy. Just just put that down there. A lot of those songs were written when she was at school and she was a teenager. I think like eight of them were before she was 18. A couple of them, maybe when she was 14. I think in many ways they were diary entries they were so personal she was really bearing her soul and her life experiences through them and then that of course continues on to the second album and the record label says no these are too personal again and she says well tough luck you're gonna like like it or lump it and it obviously becomes like a mega hit of an album but i just think for her i mean she just uses her platform and her artistry to you know really explore very personal themes uh, that have affected her. And I would imagine that that's cathartic.
0: She talks about, says, I didn't want to be a pop star. I sang for therapy. I had to sing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I've definitely read interviews before where she said the place she's most content is performing, is is on stage. The thing that's really interesting with Sinead is that she she is essentially a counterculture artist, She's anti-establishment. She's counterculture. She then gets catapulted into this mega superstardom, which she never signed up for. And of course, I'm sure at points enjoyed, you know, being on the ride. But the reality of it was really not what she was seeking as an artist. And I think that's where the rub for everybody happens, because she can't be controlled and she can't be told what to do. And I think there's a lot of expectation of, you know, shut up and sing or be grateful for what you have. And even we see that SNL sketch with Frank Sinatra, you know, your platinum, baby, you know, shut up. That just isn't what it was about for her. And I think that's where all the controversial stuff, that's where it all becomes amplified because she probably shouldn't have even been there in the first place.
0: When she situates herself in this long line of Irish artists who also what she calls agitators. She specifically mentions poets and playwrights, and our audience may not be fully aware of the impact of Irish literature. So the history of English drama from the 18th century until the really middle 20th century is dominated by Irish playwrights Mm -hmm. Sheridan, Wilde, Shaw, Beckett. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how did the Irish see the role of art and advocacy at the same time?
1: Yeah, it was just a way to be able to express and vent a lot of the kind of oppression (laughs) that was happening in the country. Actually, she says it beautifully in the film. Irish artists are often agitators. and She refers to like riots in the streets about plays. There's always just been such a history of outspoken writers and playwrights and then a lot of censorship in Ireland as well. I mean, and that goes back to the church. Another fabulous doc, which you must watch. Another one, I'm going to keep throwing them in. Um, but if you're interested in the history of Ireland, and if you haven't seen it, is Rocky Road to Dublin by Peter Lennon. We actually have clips of it in our films. It was shot by Goddard's cinematographer. Like phenomenal. And asks the question, what does Ireland do? Now it has its revolution. And it's very much about all of this. Agitators, political agitators. but such a hotbed, you know. Unease with the English rule, with the Irish, you know. Pushback. I mean, there's just so much to comment on, and I think artists have always used their platform in Ireland to to be able to direct people to, I suppose, just to the inequality that people have felt they've suffered in Ireland, which was quite profound, multiple reasons from multiple directions. <laughs> it wasn't just the Catholic Church. <laughs>
0: Despite this, you don't place her really deeply within the context of other Irish musicians or bands of her time. So, with the brief exception of there's a reference of, to Van Morrison, but you two, the Pogues, the Boot Town Rats, My Bully Valentine, Cranberries, many of whom saw themselves as political and social actors to a greater or lesser degree, I think. Yeah. You show Sinead with Kurt and Courtney, but not with Bono and The Edge.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I wasn't conscious not to include anybody. I mean, I have huge respect for all the Irish artists that you mentioned. It just didn't feel hugely relevant to the story and I suppose what we needed to show when you see the curtain Courtney is just like how far she's traveled she's in that world suddenly she's left Ireland so important to us with this story kind of really hit home just how big she was for a minute she was pretty much the biggest artist in the world for a few years Especially for younger viewers watching this, I don't know if they'd know that. By fitting in the juxtaposition of her with these very well-known, iconic American faces, it really helped hit that home. As you mentioned, all of the artists are agitators and phenomenal in their own rights. But Sinead just kind of, for me, just felt like she came from outer space. Whilst there's all the history of all these incredible people, she just arrived like an alien from outer space. There was nothing like her before. And that's what was so exciting to us as like young Irish women. We're just like, what the hell is this? This is brilliant. <laughs> because we'd never seen anything like it. There was no precursor to Sinead. She obviously references quite a lot of old traditional music and literary heroes and everything within the work. But really, she was very contemporary and unique when she arrived.
0: So before we get to the scene on SNL, uh, Saturday Night Live, you recount some of the other challenges that Sinead made to contemporary thinking around she doesn't go to the Grammys, uh, think over concerns about censorship and also the Gulf War. She also refuses to have the American national anthem played before a show. He kind of nicely contextualize this. We start out with some of the images from Ireland, then we get some images of London, and now we're beginning images of the world. You show some world events with a focus maybe on the U.S., montage of world events during this period the song you chose here is i'm stretched on your grave which is an interesting choice because again to my mind my immediate mind when i hear that song it's about her mother again but it has deeper resonances i think here
1: yeah i suppose with that scene we just really wanted to set up the america that she was entering into the final shot of all in that sequence is a plane with the word caution on it i don't know if you noticed that it's really trying to set up what it looked like in 1990 she's arriving in to play this huge tour at the peak of her fame and there's just so much happening we go into the national anthem after that and her refusing to play it and looking into the patriotism at that point because of the gulf war you kind of have to set everything up to then understand the backlash because it's so immense to that particular action 1990 she's at new, she's playing at a outdoor gig in new jersey and she's asked if they can play the national anthem as they always do before uh, her concert and she politely says no <laughs> which goes down like a lead balloon again as she articulately says in the film she didn't set out to try and piss anybody off that wasn't her intention she just didn't want any national anthem played in front of any of her concerts thank you very much and She didn't see why that had to be like a mandatory requirement. And she certainly didn't realise the effect it would have. But because you see in the montage, we're trying to build what's actually, you know, the temperature of the country at that time. It was just a bit of a perfect storm (laughs) because people were feeling really riled up politically and about the war and I mean it just it it caused a big ruckus and I would say that's when the ruckus is the crack starts to happen with the relationship she has with the press and the sea change towards her it starts then and then builds
0: the pope at this point is John Paul II who became pope in 1978 I guess one of the things that really struck her is that he said that he loved them but she felt like no that didn't include me he doesn't love me and it's really a deep betrayal, you know, as a Catholic girl, i guessing during confirmation felt that she really had a contract with the Holy Ghost, but now she feels betrayed by the church, by the Pope. Can you explain a little bit about what those feelings were at that point?
1: I mean, again, it's tricky for me to speak for her on such a personal subject, but I just think what she's referring to is finding out the horrors of what's gone on and what the cover-ups have been and how children particularly have been treated in Ireland and I just think she feels absolutely horrified and you can hear her voice actually start to break when she's talking about that I think she feels deeply let down by this church that she's loved being part of her total dismay and just the the horror when all of that truth came out just how it made her feel and obviously lots of other people feel
0: I've spoken on this podcast before about my own kind of oblique experience with uh some of the issues of the Catholic Church at this point. Uh, I think it is something we many of us felt. So I can tell you when I saw her rip up the picture of the Pope, my feelings were uh, at least complicated. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Let's talk about that because I think that's really crucial. It's a very powerful scene. And I hadn't really noticed how deep the imagery was until i saw your film so she's on the saturday night live this the musical stage she's been introduced by tim robbins there's votive candles behind her she's wearing a star of david it looks like yes, yeah. in the front she has a cloth with rasta colors so she has at least three different religions represented here mm-hmm. and then she chants lyrics from bob marley's war which in themselves are drawn from Haile Selassie's speech to the un And they include lines, I'm going to come close here, I may not exactly have her version, but until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is finally permanently discredited and abandoned, I say war. And then she tears up the Pope and says, fight the real enemy. And then just the aftermath. Can you just talk about what happens hereafter?
1: Well, I mean, um, I think... Tumbleweed, I think, is what it sounds like. There was a lot of very stunned people, both in the audience and in the production team. Certainly nobody, but not even her band, nobody knew she was going to do this. This was very much Sinead in her own. She saw it as a very important action to do. As she Again, as she says in the film, she'd been reading about these accounts of families talking about priest abuse. She'd also find out a bit more about her own family and her mother and I think she was just feeling incredibly angry and wanted to shine a light on this particular subject. Her publicist Elaine Shock says that she went in, she blows out the candles, all the jaws are on the ground, everybody's horrified. And she goes in to see her in the dressing room and Sinead's really happy <laughs> and she's really delighted with what she's done. And Elaine's like, I can't get you out of this. And Sinead says, well, that's fine. I don't want you to. She's delighted with what she's done, but I don't think she nor anybody could have predicted the backlash that comes straight away afterwards, you know, it on every news site in the world that travels back to Ireland, England, everywhere, you know, titles and headlines like Sinead the She-Devil. It's all very Burn the Witch. The tabloid press, everybody's so outraged by this action, which Kathleen Hanna, one of our contributors, fantastically points out. Her and her friends have thought, wow, this is amazing. Feminist performance art and TV, but the rest of the world doesn't take the same view. They see this as blasphemy and just the horror of horrors that she could possibly do this. Really, it's the beginning of the end for her commercial career, where she is at that point, because the backlash is so profound and so intense. I mean, when we show in the film, the festivals, people are just gasping when they get to this stage and actually see just how violent the backlash is. It just feels, one, it feels absurd, completely absurd. And two... It's just incredible when you have it all edited together and you can just see how it just keeps going. And people who you really would have thought, one, would have been allies or two, maybe just would have been more apathetic about it. So many big names and platforms are really against her and they deal with it by mocking her. So she becomes ridiculed and it's all about the reductiveness of her voice and her power and that she's this and she's that and she doesn't know what she's talking about and it just becomes like a mass cancelling before the term was coined and at a time when there was no social media there was no way to share your side of the story if the press weren't writing about you if you weren't being published in papers or on tv shows you may as well have gone because there was no way to be able to speak to the masses it's a very profound moment really to witness it happening and Even for me as a young Irish girl, like I discovered her through my father in the late 80s and then really became a bonafide fan in the early 90s. Totally loved her and her music and her look and her activism. We really needed her. But then I was so demoralized in 1992 to see this person that I'd found and loved and meant so much, just completely torn down. It was a very, it was a big hit, I think. For young women to see that happen, because so it was just like, no, 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 this can't be happening. It was a violent takedown of a of a powerful woman that people I think find too loud, too noisy, too dangerous.
0: Some of the comments from Joe Pesci, Camille Paglia, Phil Hartman—all I would point out—raised as North Americans in the Catholic tradition, just just the uh, literal invocations of violence towards her. I know, shocking,
1: really shocking, and really sad. And amazing that all of the comments that you'll see in the film were allowed to be published on television it's just like how was that the era that we lived in where violence against women was you know used as a punchline <laughs> it's quite tragic really but very necessary to put it in just so you can feel it and see the reality of what went on i mean it was brutal
0: you suggest that for 10 years or so it was really tough for her She felt abused, you know, she had been abused as a child and she felt re-abused, re-traumatized, I think is the term even used here. Mm -hmm. But we do see some incredible changes that overtook Ireland starting in that period and continuing on until really quite recently. Could you explain what's happened in Ireland in the past, say, 20-ish years?
1: I mean, I'd say particularly in the last 10 years, tectonic shifts, really. It was fascinating. I can't remember the exact date, but the Pope came back to Ireland sometime in the last decade. And it was just really poignant to just see all of these empty streets <laughs> whereas when you see the visit, I think it was the 1978 the original visit, the fever and the excitement that he's there is so uh, apparent and then I think it was 10 years ago, this empty, empty street, the church has utterly lost its grip on the country I think as soon as the, the church abuse stories broke and the depths often broke and then were followed very quickly on with the like the laundry stories and the um, mother and baby homes you know people are just done they're just done it's like the country is reeling the transgenerational trauma is just so intense and people are just trying to I think just survive what they've been through and the church is just like a spell has been broken and I would say I, I don't know the exact figures of churchgoers in the country anymore, but it's hugely diminished. Like younger generations are like, no, 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 no. Then what became really apparent was things like uh, equal marriage referendum went through in 2015. I think it was the first country in the world to vote for equal marriage, which just felt so fantastic. And then, of course, there was the repeal the 8th abortion referendum at the end of 2018, and that was touch and go. I mean, that was it was so emotional and such a powerful campaign. And it just it was like a snowball. It just kept building and building. But you just don't know how these things are going to work out. And it was such a an emotional day when it was repealed. You know, it's by no means gone or perfect. Still have to get the, I can't remember the exact line, but the constitutional point about a women's duty is in the home. Something equally fabulous as that, but uh, that's still in there and that's being hoiked out. Campaigners are trying to get that one out. And then I just think, my goodness, Ireland supposedly is now, I think in the top 10 most liberal countries in the world. It just feels absolutely bizarre. that It's moved so dramatically from where it was even 15 years ago. I think people just have had enough. And it's by no means utopia. There's a lot still wrong in the country. Even things like direct provision is surely another form of um, institutionalisation. But in terms of that control over society, the spell's been broken. And it's really interesting, just even with Sinead herself, and a big reason why I wanted to make the film is that she just hasn't, being mentioned actually there's one there's not been a film made about her two you know all of these tectonic shifts were happening but she wasn't being mentioned in the conversations and it was like why is she not front and center not partaking in things but just actually being talked about as somebody who surely kicked the door down For future generations to be bold and to push back. I definitely think these younger activists in the last five, seven years, they are bringing her with them, which is brilliant. And now even in Temple Bar in central Dublin, there's a mural of her face and on it it says, Sinead, you were right, we were wrong, we are so sorry. And that's like in the centre of the major tourist district. But then on another really exciting thing on that was last week seeing the poster for this film in Times Square. Huge shot of her face when surely the last time her image was in Times Square was when it was being rolled over by steamrollers nearly 30 years to the month, October 1992. And that just felt hugely powerful. It was like, there she is. Phoenix from the Flames right up there on a massive billboard. That's
0: great. And you end with Sinead singing once more. She's once again dressed in blue. She wore, wore the blue earlier. It's a different blue, but and now her head is covered. You don't mention that she's converted to Islam, but I think we can kind of intuit it. Your titles have told us in the last 30 years, she's released seven albums, toured extensively. There have been recent rumors of her imminent retirement. Do you know, is she going to be back out there soon?
1: I honestly couldn't say. I mean, she's had the most horrific year of her life this year. So I don't know. What I do know is that there is an album that was due for release that David Holmes, the music producer, has produced, and it's meant to be absolutely astounding. I have people that have heard it and they said it's, it's nearly the best yet. We, we shall see, but I don't know. But I do hope if she ever returns to performing that she'll feel the love. My goodness, because it's fascinating just with the film. Of course, her book came out in June, which was fabulous. It did so well, and I think so many people enjoyed. But really, I'm hoping that, and the film, if she does return to performing, there'll just be this, hopefully, quite a new demographic of fans as well. Like I'm really hoping the young ones all see it and get really inspired.
0: I want to congratulate you. You brought together the story of an artist, and you've combined it together in the context of the history of a country and even of a global religion. It's a compelling portrait. It tells us a lot about her. It tells us a lot about the world in so many ways. And if you are a fan of Sinead O'Connor, you're going to learn a lot in this film. You'll see a lot of new things. But if you don't know that much, I think you'll really get a sense. You you draw the comparisons and the connections here to Megan Three Stallion, who was on Saturday Night Live, and Billie Eilish, who's expressing her views in a lot of different settings. It is a story about 30 years ago, but it's also a story about today in a very powerful
1: way. Thank you, yeah, and that that was key to us, was really to focus in on that era, but really bring it up to contemporary times so that we could look at it through this contemporary lens and just show why. Her story needs to be discussed a lot more. And the great thing that we found out when we were researching the film and going back to Ireland and meeting lots of academics and writers is that she's now being written into the history books as an Irish figure of importance, as opposed to a singer. She's finally, rightfully, being viewed.
0: Well, thank you so much for today. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. Lovely talking to you.
0: Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves?
1: I don't know if it got attention in the States, but my favourite doc I'd say in the last 10, 15 years is The Arbor by Clio Bannard. That really startled me when I first saw it. It's about a famous playwright from Northern England. It was one of the first hybrid docs that really stood out. Clio interviewed a lot of the key protagonist's family, but used actors to replay scenes that they were describing, but using their real VO, because the family didn't want to appear in the film. And it was just so innovative, so emotional. And I just thought, crikey, okay, that's the kind of documentary I'd like to aspire to.